are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in tonight. We are underway here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. My name is Steve Dace. What's your name? Email us and let us know. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. A, a lot of you are still asking me. We are really close. I mean, excruciatingly close to being able to, uh, to break some big news about what is to come for us. So just be a little bit more patient. I am, I am hopeful, nary, maybe optimistic that we're going to be able to break it this week. So, we're getting closer. Again, steve at stevedace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Now, some of you know, and Todd, of course, you know this. Uh, I started out uh, being a local sports talk radio guy. I do. Aaron, you would have probably been too young when I started doing Yeah, I don't that, right? remember your sports talk radio days, no. Yeah, I started that in 1999. And I did that until 2006 when... Uh, the legendary WHO Radio in Des Moines uh, switched me full-time to News Talk Radio, and mediocrity was born. One of the things I used to often joke about when I was doing local radio, because I only listened, you know, growing up and coming up in this business, I only listened to sports talk radio and conservative talk radio. In fact, when I first got into this, because I had listened to so much Rush Limbaugh and Jim Rome in my 20s, I found myself unintentionally using some of their own catchphrases and expressions and how I talked. And my very first program director, Johnny Wright, barged into my office at my first sports, sports talk radio job, unplugged my radio where I listened to these guys all day long before I went on the air, removed it, and banned me from listening to any other talk radio for at least 30 days so that I would be able to develop more of my own voice, right? And I do. I still honor most, most, most of that to this day. I don't really, as you guys know, I don't listen to a lot of other talk radio other than sports talk radio. And if I'm in the car, I've got it on, you know... Well, right now I've got it on the local Christmas music stations because, you know, I'm a complete Christmas slappy. And one of the things I used to joke about on my own show is, you know... You know, to th- you always know when a sports talk radio host is out of things to talk about. When he says, "Do you think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame?" Okay, because that's people will call up. Still to this day, they'll call up and debate this, and it's it's never going to happen. It's a nothing burger. It's literally now where you're not broadcasting, you're marking time, right? And so when a, a sports talk radio host asks his audience, "Should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame?" It means he's out of things to talk about. And then I used to joke that when a conservative talk radio host asks his audience, "Should we put people in prison for burning the flag?" That also means they're out of things to talk about. Do you remember me joking about this for years? So imagine. <laughs> this morning when I wake up and 
I'm brushing the teeth, I'm uh, taking care of my business, and I'm scrolling through Twitter to immediately get caught up on what's happened since I, uh, since I hit the hay. And lo and behold, Twitter is ablaze with what? Flag burning. And I thought, he did it again. He did it again. He really knows how to make the he universe did. fold in on itself, I mean, doesn't listen, he? Listen, like when Elf busts into that, co- that, that dumpy coffee shop, you did it. You did it. Right? I just want to bust through Trump Tower. You did it. You did it. World's best <laughs> troll. You did it. All right, I've I, this this was I mean it is dude he hits send on Twitter bing media pops every time and I you know I used to be of the mindset when I was offered the chance to get on the ground floor and watching all the stuff that came out in the campaign and we even talked about this and I and I wondered because people a lot of people ask me do do you wish you could do it over again now knowing how it ended no I, I would make the same I would make the same decision I don't I don't know how I could hand, how I would have handled what the Jason Millers and Katrina Pearsons and Kelly and Conways had to do from a messaging messaging standpoint during the campaign I I don't know how I would have handled that I don't think I could have but it's different now that you are the campaign is over right so all the disadvantages that you had in the campaign now are all to your advantage because you're the one that sets the agenda now. You're not reacting. They're reacting to you. And so to watch, and then to watch people on our own side feel as if, like Pavlovian dogs, the bell was rung and they felt compelled to tell you what they thought about flag burning. Whether it was a First Amendment issue or not, and I'm just watching all of this, in, like, like, this is like a science experiment. Here's the control group, right? And, and, and here's the group that they, that they gave the, um, the, fake, uh, the placebo to. And then you just watch to see how they work themselves. I mean, it, this I've never watched anything. I've never seen anything like this. It's like if trained seals had Twitter, what would they do? It would be like this. This is what they would do. You know you know they were just sitting back there in Trump Tower, like at 7 o'clock, man, pounding decaf, peeing their pants, laughing at all these people overreacting to this. And I just watched this go on for like an hour and a half before it, before it was time for me to go to the gym. I just, I could not believe even really smart people lining up to tell us what they thought. The one guy who had this right was Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics, who said, guys, no one's losing their citizenship for burning the flag Get a life and move on. You're all being played. Yes, you are all being played. This is, you know what? The great prophet Snoop Dogg had it right, men. Hate the game, not the player. I mean, he's just the dealer, right? He's just the new Jack Hustler here. It's not his fault. There's a bunch of strawberries and, 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 and base heads out there strung out looking for their next crack rock. Whose fault is that? No one's making him take it. He's just, I mean, he's just dealing it out there. But the, guy, the, 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 the folks in the media just line up to say, hit me, hit me, hit me. They're out there popping veins right now, following him into a restaurant tonight to have, as he has dinner with Romney. And a guy from CNN is li- just happens to be there and is live tweeting it. 
as if they don't know this is going on, and then Trump just interrupts and, and just starts talking to the guy and acknowledges him in the restaurant. I mean, this is... <laughs> now, whatever headaches he put his messaging team through in the, in the campaign, now that they're in governing mode, this, this is an amusement park now. I mean, you're just choosing, well, do I want to do the roller coaster? Do I want to do the teacups? You know, um, do I, what, the log ride. Should we do the log ride? The water rapids? You're just choosing the ride now. And they're all fun every time. I can't believe. And they just, and they flip out. I mean, Trump could have walked through the front door of Fort Knox and just started pocketing gold platelets and walked out and said, what? I, I don't know what you're talking about. I got nothing. And they'd still be freaking out about what he was doing on Twitter. This is unbelievable to watch adults behave like this. And, and they fall for it every time. What's tomorrow? Trump, 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 Trump's hot take on Twitter tomorrow. Picard, better starship captain than, than Kirk. No! Jar Jar Binks. Well, maybe that's a racial stereotype that needs further study. I mean, this is flag burning. Seriously. This is what the media had a meltdown about this morning. Flag burning. He's just rubbing in your face now. I mean, they're just, they are just spiking the ball in the end zone on you now. Tomorrow, it's going to be your mama. I mean, that's the only thing left is your mama jokes um, and, and in your face. This is... Todd, this is this is the equivalent of of watching somebody in the schoolyard that is good at put downs, and the other kids just line up because he knows that they they're gonna get they're gonna get put down, but they think he's so good at it that they just they want him to put him put him down. They they can't help themselves. Well, no matter who's in control of Congress or who's the president, up until this point. The press, right, left, down the middle, whatever, they were basically covering the Truman Show. And it's so predictable. And, okay, this this issue's up. Okay, I take this angle, you take this angle, rinse, wash, repeat. And now, all of a sudden, Jim Carrey's little Truman went off script. And they don't know what to do. And I'm not sure they're ever going to know what to do. I mean, I I mentioned earlier uh, this week about wandering 40 years in the desert. You know, this we might need a next generation to figure this out. This one is wired differently. I wonder if the left understands what is happening to them right now, in fact. I want to talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace. You can agree with him, or you can be wrong. It's a free country. Steve Dace. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. I don't want to relay a series of events that you may think are unrelated, but I think very well could be. All right, so last week, Steve Bannon, Trump's uh, uh, Svengali, Rasputin, whatever you want to refer to him as, um, conciliary, maybe a little bit of each, all of the above, etc., gave an interview to, of all people, The Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> it's just the only, that's the only media outlet I believe he's talked to since the election. And he talked about, to, they're looking at a, tri- a, a or a, I'm sorry, a billion dollar infrastructure program. 
jobs program, similar essentially to the New Deal. Remember we talked about that. Earlier today, uh, Trump and Pence announced they've cut a deal with Carrier in Indiana to keep over 1,000 jobs in that state. For and They make air conditioners, furnaces, right? All right so they're going to keep those jobs, those heating and cooling jobs, are going to keep them in the state of Indiana. I don't think we have all the details yet on whether there's a goodie bag there, there's just they're going to get rid of some regulations, some tax cuts, etc. We've seen the protests in the street, right? Hashtag not my president. We've seen that stuff too. You see the way the left is reacting to some of his cabinet appointments. Uh, I believe they said Betsy DeVos was the quote, somebody sent me something today, the quote, most anti-LGBT education secretary we've ever had. And then there is this story over at the Daily Signal today. Second Vote, which is a a conservative slash Christian uh, consumer advocacy group that monitors the spending patterns and purchasing patterns of corporate America and whether they're using our resources against us or not, right? And they've they've been aligned along with the American Family Association and the Target boycott that's been going on for most of this year now since they decided to allow their bathrooms to be um, uh, petri dishes for assault, potentially, by letting men into the women's restrooms. Their website server for Second Vote, who's going to be on our show, by the way, later tonight, I should mention, their website, the, the, the company that hosts their website, has told them because of their, quote, inclusivity um, policy, unquote, They have to take their website down because it violates their terms of service. So somehow they get to decide if if, if the service you're asking them to perform is it goes against their morals. But the Christian baker and florist cannot. All right, so I just gave you a series of what would seem to be on the surface random events. Except they're not. They're not random events. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that they're happening in coordinated either. They're occurring simultaneously because of how the environment is changing. And I'm not sure, conservatives know what is happening to us. I see what uh, my boss over at Conservative Review, Mark Levin, is posting on his Twitter account during the day. He's not very happy about the early returns of the Trump transition team from a conservatism perspective at all. So we conservatives, we understand the box that we're in with what's happened here. We get it. Some of us made a choice that we just couldn't go along with this in the election. Some of us made the choice that what the other side was offering as unfettered Marxism had to be opposed, even if we're uncomfortable with it. So we got to get on board with it. But... All of us, except for those who sold out and became shills, all of us, even if we were nose pluggers, anybody but Hillaryers, or never Trumpers, all of us understood the the box what Trump was proposing was going to put us in. I don't need to rehash that argument. Because if you listen to this show, you already are aware of it, and you know we're going to probably continue to have it for the next four years. Who I'm not sure understands what is happening to them, however, is the left. I'm not sure they understand what is happening. See, a new political party is being formed as we speak right now. It's under the exact same brand. 
Same logo, still has the elephant. Still goes by GOP or Republican, but it is not the same party. That doesn't mean it's better. It doesn't mean it's worse. We will find that out. But it will definitely be different. And this hasn't been Reagan's party for a long time. I know the Trump advisor who went to Capitol Hill last week and proclaimed this got a lot of heat, but he's right. Now, I think he's, I think he's right, probably not for the reasons he thinks he's right. But this party has begun, had begun the process of dismantling and abandoning Reaganism almost from the moment he left the national stage. Let's just be honest about this. That's why we had a Tea Party. That's why we had all these contested primaries. That's why there was an anti-establishment fervor. That's why you got Trump. That's why, and the guy who got the second most votes, Ted Cruz, was the other anti-establishment candidate. The two people the Republican Party hated the most got by far the most votes in the highest turnout primary the party has ever had. Why? Why? See, what's happening here is the left is being pushed further to the left. I don't know that you Democrats understand what he's doing to you. He is setting up a bull moose party. This is an old style, pre-progressive era Democratic party that you are watching. This will be a big government, socially conservative party. Or at least more socially conservative than it's been the last several years. There will be really no honest attempt at trimming government, though, on any level, I believe. And even when they repeal Obamacare, they will just replace it by another big government program. What he's doing here, intentionally or otherwise, is he is following the FDR playbook. He is going to use the Trump party is going to use the power of government to buy votes in order to get away with pushing their, their, their cultural social agenda. Who's been doing that for the last 50, 60 years? Progressives. Progressives have. Since, the, since FDR's New Deal, they have, and, and, they, and, and they got a lot of people to vote against their own moral values simply because I needed this job, I needed this program. The script is now being flipped. And you're going to be the party of, we're going to take your website down because we don't believe in your moral values. We don't believe in your conservative values. You're going to be the party of, we got to get rid of Brandon Ike, Ike at uh, Mozilla, the company he helped found. That's who you're going to be, guys. That's who he, that, that's, that's how, he's going to be the party that used government to save Carrier. You see where I'm going with this? We on the right have been wrestling with what this movement was going to, the choices it was going to force us to make. I don't believe you on the left understand that you're going to be put in the exact same box. Most of us know the Democratic Party as we knew it when we were growing up has been dead for a long time. It's, It's official. It's going to become official now. You will be a Marxist party. That's what you will be. He's going to occupy so much space in the center, and he's going to keep enough of the conservative grassroots, particularly churchgoers in line, by being socially conservative on a lot of issues he doesn't really care about anyway, that he's going to get away with using government to buy people's votes. So that he can hold his cultural part of his coalition He can reward them. The exact game plan the Democrats have played, he's now flipping the script, and he's using it against you. But I don't think even a lot of you even understand this yet, because you're playing right into his hands. (laughs) 
The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So I just I just laid out for everybody a few events that have happened in the last few days that, that seem like they are random occurrences, but they're not. These things are happening simultaneously. And they're happening simultaneously because the environment is changing. And you've heard me say on this show many times, one of the lessons I've learned in politics is you cannot fight the environment. The environment is what it is. You are not in control of the environment. And your job is to recognize what the environment is and then plan, strategize accordingly. So if you live in the Midwest or the East Coast, winter is coming. You bust out the the muscle shirts and the Bermuda shorts in January, you will suffer. And it won't matter it won't matter how much you're convinced in your heart that it's warm. It's not. And the environment will punish you for failing to recognize it. And if you live in Texas in August and you're wearing a, a woolly mammoth winter coat, you will be punished for that too. Can't change the environment. It's a natural occurrence. And, and what's happening is a new political party is forming right now. And, the, and, and I'm not really angry, disappointed, or even enthusiastic about it. I just understand it. If anything, I'm fascinated by it. But I understand it. I, I understand now. That for a lot of you, for the last 25 years, Bushism was conservatism for you. Because we told you it was. Well, I didn't, but the people who did this job before me uh, told you that it was. When it wasn't. No child, no left, child behind, left behind. No child left behind. Race to the top. Uh, Medicare Part D. See, you were all told that was conservatism. Because it came from Republicans. It wasn't. It's not what I got into this to do. But you guys watched all of this, and you thought... Well, that's not what you guys sold us. And then, and then you put a bunch of guys in there who told you, we're going to repeal Obamacare, cut government, hold Obama accountable. Didn't do any of that stuff either. So I, I don't blame you for rejecting conservatism. I don't blame you for it. We either, we either haven't shown it to you when given the chance, or haven't um, had candidates good enough to, to run and win on those themes if they were willing to do it when, when they were elected. But they, they weren't good enough candidates to win. So I, I, don't, I don't blame you for choosing what Trump was offering as something new. Because you know what the Democrats will do. We know that. But for a long time, they have been able to pretend that they owned the center. That's going to change. They will not own it. Trump's going to reinvent what the center means. And I think what the center is going to mean is... An inverse of the plan, the way the Democrats have been modeled. Todd, you're nodding your head yes. Do you think I'm right about this? Because what the Democrats have done is we will use the monstrosity of government to hold enough people in line so that when we allow 
the, the, the cultural Marxist out of their, out of, out from underneath their rocks to impose their will, their cultural Marxism on America, you will go with it. You will not deny it. You will say abortion on demand, rainbow jihad, you know, the boys in the girls locker room at schools because you need that government job. You need that subsidy. You need that handout. So you'll put up with a moral value system that you loathe because we bought you. I think you're about to see that paradigm changed. I think Trump's going to use the full power of the monstrosity of government to buy his own voters. And instead, you're going to get, instead of the rainbow jihad, you're going to get Betsy DeVos and Jerry Falwell Jr., who was originally offered the job of Secretary of Education. You're going to get their cultural agenda instead. And I think who will this be a very big challenge for on the right are the people who don't care about social issues but are really committed to limited government. I think you're in for some time in the wilderness. Now, I'm a full-spectrum conservatism. I don't think we can have limited government without a moral people, and I think it's hard to maintain a moral people without a limited government. So there's some of this I agree with and some of this that I am abhorred by the prospect of what we're about to do. But I see it coming. He's going to flip the script. He's going to use the Democrats' plan against them. And he's going to reward all of these social conservative, Christian conservative voters who showed up for him in droves. He's going to let their leaders have a lot of what they want, depending on whether they're willing to ask for it or not. And then him and Bannon and everybody else are going to use government to essentially buy a generation of voters. Just what the Democrats did. And that will leave the Democrats to be the party that just won 15% of the counties in America. The, the party of the most progressive, socially liberal parts of the culture. The party of the college campuses, but not the rest of America. The center, Todd, I believe, is about to change. Am I wrong? Oh, no. You are interpreting something that's been going on for a while, like uh, public schools, people ranting against public schools, but they usually say, I like my schools. People ranting against uh, big government, but they can't really talk about some government oh, that think, they want I, to get rid I of. I think he's going to give you all the money for public schools and Head Start and everything and all the and all the preschool programs you want. He's just going to take out the cross-dressing trannies as well. So, so he's going to give you all, every, just tell them what amount you want. I think Trump will, Trump will print the money for you. He's absolutely figured out which buttons we like it's like we're dogs. He's got he's scratching behind our ear right now, Steve. He's got us. Yeah. And I think you're watching an entire new, entirely new political coalition form. And we'll, and and I, the, we conservatives, we know this. This is why we've been arguing with each other for the last year about this. We saw this coming. But you on the left, I think you have no idea about what you are about to be jackknifed by. You're listening to Steve Dace. The new benchmark in broadcast mediocrity, Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Let's switch gears. 
Decision Desk is one of uh, the sources that uh, I like to consult on election data. You've probably seen me share a lot of it on a lot of their information on social media during the course of this election. Brandon Finnegan is their founder. He joins us now because I, I want to separate fact from astroturf fiction on the so-called Democrat recount efforts uh, that are spearheaded by uh, Jill Stein, who said there's ne- that Hillary's never met a mushroom cloud she didn't like during the campaign, but now they are ostensibly on the same side here on these recount efforts. So nobody knows more about this stuff and election laws and the process across the state that I know of anyway than Decision Desk. So, Brandon, it's a pleasure to have you with us tonight, brother. How are you? Doing great, and I'm happy to be on. So, Brandon, let, let's start there. I, I think th- that this is almost entirely masterpiece theater. All right, I think this is the equivalent of when the real Tea Party started in '09, and all these fake Tea Party scam packs and email uh, of efforts uh, debuted in order to to pilfer uh, conservatives across the country. I think this is the left wing version. This and the Electoral College are essentially just scam packs on the left, shakedown efforts off of gullible members on their own side uh but maybe i'm wrong is there any substance to this effort at all there there really isn't um ironically the the article that kind of kind of sent all this spiraling out of control that appeared in uh, new york magazine even the people behind it they were noticing these quote-unquote anomalies weren't really saying that this is solid evidence or that this was you know this is we have to absolutely go after this they weren't even really sure what to make of it. They were kind of maybe suggesting it's something worth exploring, but that was it. Stein and a lot of people on the left then took that up as, well, this is clear evidence of, well, no, it is. Um, there's been no solid evidence whatsoever that anything fraudulent occurred in Michigan, Wisconsin, or Pennsylvania to the degree that it would have actually impacted the, the direction of the election in terms of how the votes were counted, in terms of who won. Um, you know, the margins right now, uh, in Wisconsin, the margin's about 20,000 votes. Michigan, 10,000 votes. And Pennsylvania is uh, well over 60,000 votes. The AP has a tally of 70. We have one that's slightly smaller because we've had more of the urban counties report and kind of finalize more of their numbers. So, But even still, I mean, 60-some thousand votes is a, is a massive margin. And, and the truth is that the only way the, the election would be completely reversed and Hillary could get in is if he lost all three. If Trump lost Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, well, he's certainly not went losing Wisconsin or Michigan. Wisconsin is subject to that recall. To the, I'm sorry, to the recount, but he's not losing Wisconsin. Like you know, what people need to understand is, while percentages look really uh, look enticing when you see like a race oh, it was decided by only a percentage point or it's only half a point, you need to understand what the actual numbers behind that look like. Like in the state of Pennsylvania, sixty thousand votes. Go ahead and go to Kinko's and try to hold 60,000 pieces of paper. (laughs) Now, it's easy to see a recount effort that could overturn an election decided by maybe a few dozen votes or 100 votes or 200 or 500 votes. But, you know, that's basically a ream of copy paper. But what we're talking about here is effectively, um, oh, I don't know, 120 to 150 reams of copy paper stacked on top of each other. That's how many votes we're talking about that would have to be reversed effectively, or halfway, half that margin and turned around. It's still, it's incomprehensibly huge, and no one is going to, no county clerk is going to have overlooked this, this degree. They've already done, most of these counties have already been canvassed and re-canvassed already. They had their initial vote numbers on election night. They've added in their provisional counts. They've done another count. 
uh, of their of their tallies. Most of your major uh, metro areas have already done that. The largest counties in Michigan did that. In fact, well before the deadline. Uh, the same thing with Wisconsin. The same thing with Pennsylvania. So, barring some catastrophic counting error uh, in one of these large, large counties in one of these states, which isn't going to happen, no one's going to find that. Nothing's going to come of this. This is a, basically a nice fundraising effort, in my opinion. It's a fundraising effort for Jill Stein. But she'll, you know, she's got enough people who are really passionate about this. The left uh, uh, reacted with complete shock to what happened on November the eighth. And they're desperate for a win. You know, there's been other lefties who've been trying to convince, trying to convince uh, their more excited members. Look, if you want to spend any money, why don't we try to go after the Louisiana Senate runoff, or why don't we go after these North Carolina state house races that are now suddenly going to be on the map next year? This is something we could invest our money, and we could really, you know, get somebody. But they want something now. This, you see this with the extremes of both parties. It's very easy. They're very susceptible to conspiracy theory. They're very susceptible to, well, I heard somebody said this. And on the left, because of this, the nature of academia, uh, the typical reaction is this guy's got a degree and he wrote a very convincing paper. So um, he's right. No thinking on their own court. Just I read an article in a big magazine. So obviously this is a cause I must believe in, too. Well, no, no one even asked you to jump on board with this. You did this on your own. Um, so it's, it's kind of a funny, well, probably not funny for the clerks to have to go through all this all over again, but, um, it's just a giant waste of time and money. But for once, it's actually, it's, as, as you alluded to earlier, it's almost like a scam pack that we saw on the right, except this time it's affecting the left, where they're convincing people to waste money. I mean, exactly. I, 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 I give Jill Stein some credit, Brandon. She's taking on the monumental task of of surpassing the entire Ben Carson for president campaign as the greatest scam pack in modern American politics. No one and no one thought that could be done. And yet they are willing to take on that effort. I think we should give them some 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 some, some faint praise for that because if they were really concerned as you point out if they're really concerned about election integrity, why not demand a recount in New Hampshire where Hillary won by a smaller margin than Trump won Wisconsin? Well, yes, if this is really, if we're being consistent here and saying, oh, this is, well, no one challenged that one, but that doesn't matter. If you're really legitimately concerned about the integrity of the machines that count the votes, the process, you're alluding to all this fraud, you think that there should be a recount, why not recount all the all of the close states? Well, that's not, that's not within the realm of possibility along that leftist fantasy. What their fantasy is limited to is we can target these states and we're going to flip one of them. Maybe we'll find this or we'll prove there was this. But without any actual substantive thing that you can really point to and say, this clearly indicates there was something wrong here. This is a clear indication of fraud. Not there could be fraud, but this is a clear indication of fraud. Mm-hmm. Without that, they're just going to set themselves up for a terrible disappointment. All right, Brandon, hold it right there. i got to get a break, but there's another question I want to ask you on the other side of this argument when we return. Stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace. We don't play for a team. We fight for the truth. You're listening to Steve Dace. All right, back here. Just a few more minutes with Brandon Finnegan to close out the hour, the founder of Decision Desk. And if you want to get smarter about politics, definitely give them a follow on social media. they got a lot of great information. 
So, Brandon, we've been talking about, and you've, I think, laid out a really compelling case for, for why the odds of these recount efforts are, are pretty much the odds of monkeys flying out of my backside. But I want to f- go back to election night. Trump wins four states by 1.4 points or less. I, I, I read some stuff that showed about 100,000 people in Michigan voted but didn't vote for president at all. 40,000 people in Milwaukee that voted in 2012 did not vote in 2016. And we saw a lot of these sort of anomalies around the country. The way that he won that election on November the 8th, is that a model that can be replicated going forward? Um, or was that, because this is the analogy, Brandon, that I've given our audience, that this is the equivalent of, they just handed you your last paycheck on the job site, said we're closing down, and you and the spouse head to Vegas to bet it all on black to avoid homelessness, and it comes through. That's what I thought happened on November the 8th, but what do you think? You're the expert here. Well, I think that the, the anomalies that people are bringing up, they're not really anomalies, it's these, these kind of core areas that people associate with Democratic uh, strength just didn't come levels that came out in uh, 2012. I, I think I, I can take this and answer this with an argument I had with uh, Drew McCoy, who is a, uh, he's a co-writer at the Decision Desk, he's one of the big partners there. We've had an argument back and forth about during the 2012 cycle when Romney did, you know, much better in Pennsylvania, even though he hadn't actually targeted the state. Um, they improved uh, better in northwestern Wisconsin. Of course, not enough to win the state. And I was like, well, you know, maybe this is this is a sign that these these areas are are slowly but surely trending. They're just not ready yet, but they're trending that way. You know, and uh, maybe the next cycle or the cycle after that, they can Republicans will break through and they'll win the state. And uh the argument we had back and forth then was, but well, what if this was the ceiling for the Republicans, assuming that the worst case scenario, this was the ceiling that the best the Republicans are ever going to do. And uh, that Obama's weaker performance than in 2008, this was the kind of the nadir uh, for the Democrats. Well, it turned out that wasn't. It turns out that might have been the ceiling for the Democrats in a lot of these um, high turnout areas and the reverse for Republicans. I think that many traditionally Democratic voters in a lot of these pockets in the country, did not show up to vote, but they showed up to vote in other parts and other parts of the country. And you know, the the turnout in Pennsylvania was considerably high. It was a good rate in Pennsylvania across the state. Allegheny County actually voted more Democratic than it did in 2012. It's kind of one of those weird uh, oddities of the election. So, banking on reduced Democratic enthusiasm is never a strategy. Never banking on your opponent doing the worst thing imaginable or failing. It's a terrible way to run your campaign. To just assume that, well, they're going to be so bad, right. we can just win this thing. Great stuff, Brandon. We definitely want to have you back in the future. All right, you guys do great work, and we really appreciate it. Tell Drew I said hello. Will do. All right, we'll come back with Hour 2. Stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace. Now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Come on. 
And we're back with Hour 2 of the Steve Dace Show here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. So let us know. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up a little bit later on, John Kasich again. But first, one of my favorite columnists joins us now, Tim Carney from the Washington Examiner. And Tim, it's good to have you on the show tonight. How are you? Well, thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. So what I love about the work, folks, if you're not familiar with Tim's work, you should be. And one of the things he really focuses a lot on, I mean, he's a full-spectrum conservative, but he writes a lot on crony capitalism and government gone wild, or government, as we like to call it on this show. And we've been hearing some glowing headlines coming out of the Trump transition about uh, Chris Christie and his uh, cronyocracy thrown out of the transition. Mike Pence has taken over. The lobbyists have been all kicked out. And so we've been hearing some positive signs along those lines, which is why shortly before Thanksgiving, when I saw this column from Tim with a contrarian view, I thought, hey, this is definitely something we got to talk about on the show. And the headline is Trump's conf- conflicts will be crippling, Tim. So I want to start with that juxtaposition between the narrative, hey, they've thrown the lobbyist out, Christie and his cronies are gone, uh, and the lobbyists aren't happy, along with the stories about potential conflicts between Trump's business interests and now the interests of the United States. And and just your overall view of that juxtaposition, is are, are both of those narratives simultaneously true, or is one of them not, Tim? So I do think that what where Trump has focused on the lobbyists and the revolving door, one of the things he's hit on is exactly where the corruption is. I always say the liberals, where Obama said, oh, we won't hire lobbyists, that was a little bit off base. Or we need campaign finance reform, that's a little bit off base. The problem is when people are in public office and they are not serving the public but are lining up their next job in the private sector as lobbyists or something like like that, that's where the problem is. And so to take away those perverse incentives or to minimize those perverse incentives is one of the key things that Obama failed to do and that Trump, by saying he'll ban you from becoming a lobbyist for five years after you leave his administration, that if he made that rule, gave that gave teeth to that rule, that could really be a positive thing in minimizing corruption. At the same time, he's got a company that he's, his name is on, his, he says his children will run, and that he knows is waiting for him when he leaves office, that has lots of dealings that intersect very closely with his job as president with the federal government dealings. It's the exact same conflict of interest. So he's getting it right for his appointees and seemingly trying to ignore it for himself. Before we get into our, him alleging that really, really there's nothing that demands that he puts all these things in a blind trust and everything else, and, and some of the specific ties, I want to take a, a step back, Tim, take a big picture view of this dilemma. Even if, And I wonder, even if he never intended to essentially have a pay-for-play scheme, the likes of which it, it appears there's at least prima facie evidence Hillary Clinton had going when she was at the State Department, right? So yep. even if that's not his intent... Wouldn't com- wouldn't countries just line up 
to to crawl over broken glass, lay down on railroad tracks unilaterally of their own accord to provide his business interests with preferential treatment in the hopes that that would ingratiate them to the government of the United States. Would that be impossible to avoid even if he wasn't seeking it out at all? Because there's two sides of this equation, right? That's right. So it's and we talk about the appearance of impropriety is a problem in addition to impropriety. And we, the Washington Post talked to foreign diplomats who said, well, if I come to Washington, of course I'm going to stay at Trump's hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. It would be rude to, to stay anywhere else. Now, that's not true. There's no evidence that Trump is saying, you have to stay at my hotel. That would be pure corruption if Trump were saying that. But this is the appearance of impropriety where he's benefiting from it. And that just creates an expectation where if you have foreign diplomats saying that, or you have foreign governments saying, oh, well, we're going to have some government conference at the Trump Hotel here in Saudi Arabia or here in India or here in the UK, that if, if that's going on, once there's an expectation that they'll get something from the U.S. government, that creates a problem in itself. This is something I've always said. Don't Don't give anybody any expectation that they might owe you something in return that 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 itself is problematic so a lot of the well not a lot but several of the people that are well known that founded the country were pretty wealthy washington was wealthy jefferson was wealthy right so now of course different era different century but their interest they they could have been in positions of you know, uh, certain certain enclaves within the different states. Uh, you know, maybe seeking to offer something mm-hmm. in order to gain favor with them. Are are there? Is there anything embedded in the framework of our constitutional republic to provide buffers or filters for moments such as this? Or are we looking at something that is an outlier because we're dealing with a president of extreme international wealth and influence? prior to assuming the presidency. So it's it, this is a level of baked into the cakeness that just could not be anticipated, Tim. I, so I, I think there's three answers. One is, as a conservative, I know that you can't eliminate all conflicts of interest. Liberals often think, oh, you can go ahead and you can make this all clean and work. No, there will always be problems. What we do with problems is we manage them rather than try to eliminate them. So there, A, will always be conflicts of interest. B, there is a way in which this is unprecedented in that Trump is, or at least in the last couple hundred years, we haven't had somebody be such a businessman. This was part of his appeal, right, that he wasn't a politician, but he's a businessman who owns these businesses that are not easily liquidated. Mitt Romney could have just said, all right, all my wealth, it's in stocks and in my own family home, anything else, we're going to liquidate it, put it in stocks, some independent manager is going to manage it in a blind trust. And you could really mitigate almost down to zero the the conflicts of interest. Trump, his assets are a company that's mostly the main asset is his name, right? Mm-hmm. That's really hard to mitigate. But number three, in the Constitution, there is the emoluments clause. I love that. Usually we don't talk about this. Foreign governments are not supposed to be paying. A president's not supposed to be making money off of foreign governments. And one of the things I wrote in my column is the largest bank in the world is owned by the Chinese government, and it's a tenant at Trump Tower. I listed three or four ways that that could be a conflict. So there is a constitutional way to address it. To some extent, it's unprecedented. We're not going to reduce it down to zero, but Donald Trump could take actions 
to reduce it to be a much lower conflict. Give us a few suggestions. I mean, if he called you up, hey, hey, Tim, you're a guy that covers this. Remember, he told us in the, in the election he got some of his best ideas on foreign policy from watching the shows. So he said, hey, I've been reading the columns, and you've got some great ideas on limited government, crony capitalism, cleaning up the corruption. Give me a couple of ideas that are practical, that don't cost me the legacy of this company I built that I want to pass on to my children and grandchildren, and at 70 years old, I'm thinking about that. What would you say to him? Well, see, I mean, that that last condition is hard to meet because I actually, I kind of want him to have his family in the administration. I see Ivanka Trump, I see Jared Kushner as being both smart, competent people who have the ear and the trust of Donald Trump, unlike almost anybody else. Trump has trouble trusting people outside his inner circle, which sounds a lot like Hillary Clinton, by the way. Um and Trump needs lots of advisors. So I'd actually like for his family to advise him on running the, the White House. And so that would mean it would be really hard for him to keep the family being run, the company being run by his kids. I don't see that you can work that out. My advice to him would be bring your family into your administration. I think that's great. But you're going any hard assets, any building, you guys are going to have to sell. And as far as a lot of your, your assets are just that you're leasing out your name, um, you have to hand the management of that over to independent, uh, have, have your board appoint an independent manager where they don't report back to you. And again, the you know that the conflict will be there if there's still this thing out where all these, remember, his business is not primarily being a real estate developer. It's that other people set up resorts and hotels that put his name on it and he gets licensing fees. That part mitigates hand over to independent operators outside of his family. The stuff that's concrete assets, sell that off. Do what a guy like Romney or would do or what Hank Paulson did. Put it in a blind trust to be managed. Tim, I've got, to get, I would say. I've got to get to a break, but there's one more part about this I want to ask you about. Can you hold on for just a couple of minutes? Yep. Tim Carney is here with us from uh, the Washington Examiner. He's their senior political columnist talking about potential ethics problems between now President Trump and his business interests. We'll get to more on this here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. For such a time as this, Steve Dace. All right, back here at Tim Carney from the Washington Examiner. He's their senior political columnist and does some fantastic work there. I'm a, I'm an, I'm a fan of the work he does. And one of uh, the, the subjects in his wheelhouse is corruption in government, crony capitalism, etc. And so I took uh, some interest in this piece that uh, Tim wrote right before Thanksgiving about the potential conflicts of interest between Trump's business interest and now him being the president of these United States. There's a political reality to this on the other side as well, Tim. I mean, let, let's face it. Donald Trump has spent more than the gross domestic product of a small banana republic on litigation over the last several decades, right? He just settled a group of lawsuits on Trump University for $25 million. Hardly chump change. Mm-hmm. What is to stop? I mean, for, forget even legitimate claims. 
Yep. What what is to stop the same people who start hashtag not my president, who throw riots in the streets because they apparently have nothing left to do? What's to stop them from just uh, pretending to trip and break their leg in the lobby of Trump hotels <laughs> all over the country? See where I'm going with this? What is what is yeah. to stop mountains of to bog down his presidency to create? Uh, you know what what is how many how many what is to stop them from finding every potential illegal alien working the grounds crew at a Trump golf course all over America. Why wouldn't they look at that as a veritable treasure trove to be mined, uh, if for no other reason, just to throw their sabots into the machines to gum up the works? Why wouldn't they do that? No, and, and to add on to that question, again, the, the appearance of impropriety I was talking about earlier can make it very easy if, the, say, the Democrats take over the House and uh, representatives and they just want to hold hearings and um, bring all sorts of administration officials and try to get Trump himself and Trump uh, company officials before to drag up everything that may or may not potentially be improper. If if he is dedicated to this job, then he's asking for all sorts of uh, distractions by, by holding on to this business empire. And to some extent, it's a little unfair to say, oh, well, somebody should have to unload their business empire. Uh, to to take on this job, but another regard, that's what we expect of public servants in some way. And so you're absolutely right that for all the sort of fair concerns we have, there will be a hundred unfair concerns tied to his business empire, and it'll be so easy for the mainstream media to fall for them, for liberals to play sure. it up, for people to drag him into court. I mean, let's let's and, let, let's flip the script. We were talking a few minutes ago about even if he wasn't, even if he did not intentionally set up a Hillary-esque pay-for-play scheme, we were just talking. Countries would just unilaterally say, "Hey, let's try and do whatever we can to curry favor with the guy who submits the budget to the United States government every single year, right?" The president. So let's take let's take this though on the other side of the extreme. What's to stop an enterprising Republic, a Democratic, uh, um, you know, attorney general, a Democratic governor uh, in some solidly blue state, a party that is so lost with a bench right now that it had to nominate Hillary Clinton and, and nobody really knows, uh, you know, what their three or four major candidates would look like in 2020. We wouldn't even know the names right now. So what's to stop somebody from saying, here's my chance to earn my bones? I'm going to use the power of my office to essentially make his business interest hurt. To, and maybe, no, and maybe and we we'll bring saw, him we to the left it. that way. Why wouldn't they do that? We already saw Schneiderman do that a bit in New York, going after um, you know, the, the Trump Foundation, not for any sort of pay-to-play or, they didn't, you know, or anything like that. Some of those things that had me worried about the Trump Foundation, but what well, was almost a paperwork violation. And that you can see that, and that increasingly every state that's a, a blue state is really strong blue, and every state that's a red state is really strong red. So there would be very little political blowback to a Schneiderman, to an attorney general in New England mm-hmm. or in California exactly. or Oregon in, in, coming after, in coming after Trump, and that he, he exposes himself, and that's, that's the right term. But also I do think we need to worry about if you posit the good intentions of Trump, um, I just know the way this works. This is what I cover in Washington, that there are subconscious levels on which uh, policymakers are affected by their other interests, that there are staffers who worry, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't go after uh, you know, the, this, this state-owned bank in China that's his tenant because that might upset my boss, even if 
Trump never says anything about it. Just on the institutional level, without any explicit ill intent, things get corrupted by these ulterior motives and by these ulterior interests, and that this will make government run less well, that Trump has all these conflicts. And if there's anything he can do to mitigate those, minimize those conflicts, he, he really owes it to his voters to do so. Where do you think this is ultimately going to end up between now and the inauguration, Tim? <laughs> oh, I don't know. And this is something that has me worried. I mean, this is when I worry, when I feel bad for Paul Ryan every day, I think, man, he's going to one day have to say, Mr. President, you have to fix these or we're going to bring articles of impeachment towards you. Um, Trump does not want to build down, shrink, hand over his business at all. But when I talk to people who are involved with the transition team, uh, people who are very positive on all aspects of the transition. The one part they're worried about is that Trump doesn't see or doesn't want to address these conflicts. And so I think it could get messy. And you wonder whether the Republican Congress has to do something almost preemptive to pass a law saying, well, these are going to be okay, and these are not going to be okay. And basically, this this deal maker of a president, uh, it might take Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell presenting him with a deal and saying, "You got to do this, uh, and we'll let you keep doing that, and and then we can trust you to to run this government without all, without all these conflicts." Hmm. Tim Carney, Washington Examiner. Tim, you do some fantastic work. Thanks for being with us tonight, man. Keep it up, okay? Thanks. It's it's an honor to join your show. All right. Take care. Gentlemen, do you think I'm blowing this out of proportion? Because I'm I'm thinking the Democrats are 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 just going to try to completely bypass debating the issues and just try and mine this um, this web between Trump's business interest and the White House as a means of of undermining legitimacy of his presidency and to drag him into. And bog, drag him into conversations he probably doesn't want to have and bog down his administration. Am I wrong? I, I think that's true, but that's not the only thing that has to happen for it to actually uh, bog down. Because if if uh, there's going to be a lot of frivolous um, uh, complaints about Trump's business interests, and I say frivolous, some of them could be legit, some of them could uh, just be made up by the left, who's going to be reporting all of those? would be the media and Donald Trump, um, as you have alluded to and have talked about directly many, many times uh, since he's uh, won the election. He knows how to play the media and he knows how to play them like a fiddle. Now, the slow drip, drip, drip of stories um, that uh, about his business interests, that could be what do, uh, does him in as well. But I think initially, uh, just just that alone is, is not going to bring him down. Todd, I, I, everything Aaron is saying is, is correct. Correct. But this is goes back to what we talked about yesterday. This is one of those stories that I don't think people, a lot of the people that voted for him cared if he used his office to help his businesses. Nope. Provided he made the trains run on exactly. time. Exactly. If, if they're able to bog the down thing. his administration so that he can't get stuff done like this carrier deal, suddenly they're going to really care about his integrity and credibility and transparency. That's when they start caring, right? Can, the, West, the West Wing can have an annex of Trump Tower. They're not going to care. You took the words right out of my mouth. You're listening to Steve Dace. Truth.
justice and the way America should be. The Steve Day Show. So yesterday morning, a radicalized Muslim drives his car onto the campus of Ohio State University. Drives right down a main thoroughfare of the campus. Drives over the curb. Starts running people over. Jumps out of the car with a machete. May or may not have uttered an Allah Akbar or two. There's conflicting reports about that. But begins stabbing people. Seems pretty clear what's going on here. Seems fairly obvious. Unless you're the governor of Ohio. So we're not going to rush to try to figure things out. I know that's, that's your job. And frankly, it's our job to say, let the investigation take its due course. And uh, at the end of the day, we will find out what happened. We may never totally find out why this person did what they did or why they snapped. We, don't, we, we may never find out, but we're going to have a lot more information. We don't know why this person just snapped. Got up. Must be a chemical deficiency. Too much iron in their diet. Left the aluminum foil out overnight again. We have, we have no idea what caused this. This is the Republican governor of Ohio now. If I read the transcript of this and said this was the statement from the White House, you would have believed me, right? But this is the Republican governor from Ohio. You know, early in this campaign, I, I made this analogy that most Americans would prefer that the hero of the story be the Gary Cooper sheriff. Remember me making this analogy? That most Americans would prefer it be the guy who looks the part. That doesn't make your skin crawl. Doesn't think you got to keep an eye on him all the time, right? You would prefer he is the hero. But when it becomes obvious that the Gary Cooper-esque sheriff doesn't have what it takes to clear the town of the banditos, you'll fire up the Sergio Leone. You'll go get Clint Eastwood on the pale rider. And the shooting starts right away. Because if the nice guys won't do it, this guy will. And you just hide out in the storm cellar until the shooting stops. And you know, a lot of people are dead and there's a ton of collateral damage, but he got all the bad guys too. Know what I'm saying? By all rights, John K- this should have been a John Kasich kind of election. Popular Republican governor of a swing state. Republicans have never won the White House without. Was chairman of the budget committee the last time we were passing budgets that actually were balanced in this country. An extensive political resume. But the reason why this wasn't his year is because he said things like this. So we're not going to rush to try to figure things out. I know that's that's your job. And frankly, it's our job to say, let the investigation take its due course. And uh, at the end of the day, we will find out what happened. 
We may never totally find out why this person did what they did or why they snapped. We, don't, we, we may never find out, but we're going to have a lot more information. And the other guy said, throw the Muslims out. And you're like, eh, that might be going too far. But then a voice in the back of your head said, nah, 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 nah. All right. Trump! I know. Because you heard that instead. <laughs> the photobomb of this press conference is Trump behind him with the thought bubble. You want me on that wall. No doubt. You need me on that wall. I go to church as a Christian, and I'm automatically che- have to check the bigot box. But we don't know what this guy's about. This is insane. This is the man who should have won, or someone like him should have won. But instead, you went that route. Because this guy's not going to clear the town. You figured that part of it out. Now, of course, man, you got your hands covering your eyes, wondering... How much? How many structures of this town will be left by the time the pale rider is done cleaning out the banditos? We may have to rebuild the entire cotton picking place. Now there goes the town. Mar- there goes the grocer. That city hall's gone. The bar's still there, though. So at least we can take a drink or two down. But you know who's not here? All the banditos are gone, and they're all dead. Because we can rebuild. Walls. We can't rebuild people. You're listening to Steve Dace. It's not about the next election, it's about the next generation. Steve Dace. Chances are your current phone carrier is using your money to undermine your values. Did you know that? Well, that's why Patriot Mobile was created, to give conservatives like you a chance to put your money where your values are. And now you can support a phone company that you can trust to invest your values back into your values. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talking and texting, high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices, and they'll donate up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization that you choose. So that means you're going to get the same quality service, the latest and greatest phones, competitive prices, but this time because of Patriot Mobile for the causes that you believe in. So go to PatriotMobile.com, that's PatriotMobile.com, or call 1-800-A-PATRIOT. And when you decide to make the switch, use the promo code STEVE to get the $35 activation fee waived on up to two phones. Robert Kuykendall joins us now from Second Vote. They are an organization that sort of serves as a conservative watchdog on corporate activism. And Robert, it's good to have you here on the show tonight. How are you? It's great to be here, Steve. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. And uh, thank you for that appropriate introduction. Uh, We're good friends with the guys at uh, Patriot Mobile uh, because, as you said, we look at corporations to see uh, what they support and where their advocacy dollars go. And uh, AT&T, Verizon, uh, they are involved with some stuff that conservatives just wouldn't be normally supporting at the ballot box. And uh, Patriot Mobile is a great alternative. 
Well, I was reading something uh, from uh, the Daily Signal, the news arm of the Heritage Foundation today, Robert. My understanding is you guys are enjoying some tolerance at the moment, right? You guys are, (laughs) you've run smack dab into some tolerance and you're being tolerated as we speak. What's the story there? Well, we're enjoying a lot of support from uh, some conservative friends around the country, that's for sure. I would say that uh, some of the people we, we, we may have poked the hornet's nest a little bit when it comes to some of the tolerant left. Uh, we started a campaign last week called AnywhereButTarget.com, uh, hashtag AnywhereButTarget. The idea was to get conservatives uh, to engage Target on this bathroom policy that they put in place where they said, well, just anyone can go into whatever uh, facility, uh, fitting room, restroom they want, and it doesn't matter if they're male or female, just based on how they feel. Uh, and it was concerning because, uh, it was really done in support with this so-called bathroom bill madness that has seemingly struck the nation. And uh, we started this Anywhere But Target campaign to get conservatives engaged uh, and to tell Target why they were going to be shopping elsewhere this Christmas season. Uh, apparently, it struck a nerve. Uh, we had a website hosting company say the campaign was hateful and discriminatory and even tried to shut us down on Thanksgiving Day last week, of all things. So they didn't they tell you that because you violated their inclusiveness policy, they had to exclude you from their inclusiveness, right? It, it, you know, liberals have gotten great at defining words like marriage, inclusiveness, uh, discrimination. Uh, you know, this campaign was built to allow conservatives to express concern over a very controversial policy, and somehow that's hateful, discriminatory, and yes, uh, violates their inclusiveness uh, policy. So did they follow through? Where are you guys at with that? They did. They shut us down Thanksgiving morning, and uh, we had to scramble over over the holiday uh, because this uh, campaign was about getting conservatives engaged for the rest of the Christmas shopping season. You know, retailers like Target will bring in 30% of their yearly revenues in just a few weeks, and we scrambled. The campaign is back up and running uh, and, uh, and 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 we're getting we're we're getting more traction than ever uh, because uh, people are concerned with why Target would align themselves with really the liberal agenda in in such a public way because because it's a matter of safety uh, first of all when when they basically invite predators into the 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 wrong fitting rooms uh, where where just normal people are shopping. Did you find it ironic that your former web host service said that that because what you are doing violates their conscience, they can deny you service, but Christian bakers and florists are not allowed to do the exact same thing? Have you noticed that? Yes, and that's really where this whole issue has gone, because I believe when we look at these so-called bathroom bills, these accommodation laws, what's really at stake, Steve, is the is the First Amendment, the ability for individuals to say, Things like I'm not going to affirm a same-sex marriage because that's not what the Bible says is is real. And it's small business owners who are going to say, I make sure that men go in the men's room, women go in the women's room in my business because it's about the safety of my customers. And when when we're changing these laws, when we don't have when the left is is changing the definition of what marriage is, what a man is, what a woman is. Uh, it not only does it confuse things, it, it opens up uh, our culture to a lot of mischief. 
And at the end of the day, I believe that's a First Amendment issue. And that's when, when Target got involved on this issue, uh, we said they are lining up with a dangerous liberal agenda uh, that seeks to undermine our cultural values. All right, so I've got less than two minutes here, Robert. How would you like our audience to get involved in this? I, I would love your audience to come to AnywhereButTarget.com. It's just one word, AnywhereButTarget.com. You can take the pledge that says, uh, I'm shopping anywhere but Target this Christmas season uh, because I want to have an impact. I want to send Target a clear message that we don't want our shopping dollars this Christmas to fund the liberal agenda. And then we've got it set up so you can use Facebook, you can use Twitter uh, to send a tweet. Uh, keep this campaign going. Uh, you know, We're putting out more and more stuff. We have a, a Christmas shopping guide for conservatives that, that when you sign the pledge, uh, you'll be able to click a link to the Christmas shopping guide that shows our research on companies that have, for the most part, remained neutral. They haven't taken sides, which is where we want these corporations to go. And you can know that your dollar is not going to fund the liberal agenda when you go places like Hobby Lobby, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, Radio Shack, uh, and, and, and dozens of other companies uh, that haven't taken this position and really haven't supported any other liberal, dish, uh, liberal position. Um, and some are even a little more conservative than you might realize. All right, folks, the website is AnywhereButTarget.com, AnywhereButTarget.com. Uh, Robert, keep us up to date on how this is going. We appreciate your time tonight, okay? I will. Always enjoy coming on, Steve. Thank you very much. All right, you too. Take care. When we come back, the left already hard at work on getting Trump reelected in 2020 next. Listening to Steve Dace. From the front lines of the battle for liberty, the Steve Day Show. You know, when we talk about stories like this web hosting server going to second vote saying, hey, because of the conservative stances you're taking, we're going to get rid of you. We're not going to carry your websites anymore. Again, going back to how we started the show tonight, do you know on the left what you are doing? See, because you have been, you have, you have been permitted to largely live in your own media bubble, convinced that because the guys who represent us didn't frankly have the stones to challenge you on your cultural wedge issues. And by the way, neither does Trump. Other than immigration, he hates these issues, rarely talks about them, took no stance on the North Carolina bathroom uh, fight, in fact. But because of, he has, because of his persona, there is this built-in assumption that if he has to say something about these issues, he will, which I think, you know what happens when you assume, okay? But there, that assumption exists because we've seen him take on the left on some of these other things and just dissect them, you know, uh, spoon out their spleens over Twitter. We've seen this. So there's this assumption that he'd do this on these other cultural issues, too. I, I know our friends on the left are used to having opposition be nary a speed bump. And at the mere mention of their fake wedge issues... Most of the guys with the R's after their name, finding a jar to put their manly parts in and tucking their tails between their legs. 
So you're not battle ready. You're not battle tested. You're the football team that had blowouts all year long playing a soft schedule and finds itself in a bowl game against another top team who'd played in a tougher conference and has played some closer games throughout the course of the year. And you just assume that, you know, you're going to, and now you find yourself in a fourth quarter game. You don't know what to do. You didn't have to make plays before. Most of the games are over at halftime. Now it's not that way. You're entering a new reality over there on the left. And one of the aspects of your new reality is you are creating voters for Donald Trump with gestures like this on mere backlash against you. Mere backlash. You're not the majority opinion in the country on things like this. Your your candidate won 15% of the counties, guys. 15%. As in, she lost the other 85. You're not the majority view. Now, I'm not the majority view either. That's why this election tore me up. I had to admit that to myself. This country is not ready to embrace full-spectrum conservatism. I think we all agree on that too, right? But the country's far closer to me on your fake wedge issues than it is to you. And if you persist in going down this road of imposing your tolerance... 2020 will be worse for you than 2016. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with hour number three here on the Salem Radio Network. This is the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. Remember, we love to know what you think about what we think, so tell us via the stevedace.com inbox. You can access that one of three ways. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email us. D-E-A-C-E is how to spell the last name. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. When we come back here later in this hour in about 30 minutes, we're going to talk about participation trophy culture and what it is doing to dull the American senses. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Yes, it is. Three questions when our producer Aaron gets to ask us any three things about any three things. Nothing off too off the wall, too tawdry, too uncomfortable. Nothing's off limits, except there is one rule. Aaron must answer the same questions as well. Thank you, Steve. Question one, we'll be talking about this a little bit more uh, coming up in the nightly buzz. But what's your word of the year for 2016? <laughs> 
So now we've had the uh, conversation about term of the year, our uh, motto, it can always get worse, but... I'm not sure I should say what I'd like to say, or if I should come up with a plan B. Um, how about... Thankful. As in... Have you been paying attention? That's why I'm thankful. As in, I'm glad the year's almost over. Thankful this election is over. And I am thankful the Marxists have been kicked out of office. I'm uh, unsettling, unsettled about what will be there instead. I'm, I think you broke Steve Dace, Aaron. I'm, 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 <laughs> Just I'm, one word. I'm thankful, though, that there have been a couple of initial positive signs, which were a couple more than, frankly, I was anticipating. Um, and I'm thankful that we're about to announce something that's uh, going to be pretty big for us. So, just, I'm, and I'm, I'm thankful I still have a fantastic family, and I, I get to go see my oldest daughter uh, perform in the uh, community theater presentation of Willy Wonka on Friday in the first showing. So, I mean, I, I, despite how discouraging this year has been, um, there's still a lot of things to be thankful for. And I'm thankful we still get to do this in the freest country on earth. And I'm thankful we still get paid to do what a lot of men would love to get paid to do, which is to get paid to stand up for what they believe in, right or wrong. I agree. From getting to sit here and do this show... To this weekend, getting to go to Kansas City and watch my daughter play uh, on the Olympic, uh, Iowa's Olympic development team for soccer, absolutely. Blessings unlimited in my own life. But my word is going to be debauched. That's a good word. We are a mess. This is the election we deserved, not the election we needed. This was not foisted upon us. We asked for this. And this is not sustainable. Morally, fiscally, it all leads to bankruptcy. And moral bankruptcy is way worse than fiscal bankruptcy. My, uh, my word is entropy, a uh, lack of predictability, gradual decline into disorder. Yeah. I think that uh, fits this year pretty well. Question two, name one instance when you were stumped by a question someone asked you. Uh, to the point where you're like, I gotta get back to you on that one. My when Anna, our oldest, when she was young, younger, uh, when she was a, a wee lass, one day I'm sitting at the kitchen table and she asked me out of the clear blue, with no provocation at all, "Daddy, what is a real man?" And um, I just kind of looked at her, and I thought for a second, "How do I answer that?" And then when I realized I, I couldn't answer it quite yet, I did what every parent does in that situation, and I asked her. Honey, what did you say? Just have her repeat it to buy myself some time. And she said to me, Daddy, what is a real man? And um, I was stumped. And so I sat there for a second and uh, just kind of prayed, God, is there an answer out there? And I opened my mouth and these words came out. And I said, uh, Honey, a, a real man is somebody who does even what he doesn't want to do. Because he loves the people he's doing it for more than he loves himself. And then I remember being so cotton-pick and proud that I had come up with that, and I thought that was so profound. 
and Anna was maybe four, and she looked at me and said, and instead of like giving me like some kind of daddy helmet sticker or like you're the best dad ever, dad that was so wise, she's like, okay, and then just turned around and went back to playing with her dolls, right? So, um, but that was the last time somebody asked me something that uh, that put me back on my heels. You know, when your kids do ask you something, there's an answer for them and there's an answer for this audience and ultimately it is the same answer but you need to figure out a way to tell them in a way that makes sense i remember my third daughter asking me about why do um, bad things happen to good people why why do evil people seem to flourish and i was trying to talk to her about god being a uh, long suffering and there's you know there's we've lived under different covenants with god and why why this one is different than others in the past you know there's a lot in there and we would talk about it so much differently with this audience and trying to figure i I kept pulling back and starting and stopping because i was trying to get to a point and i think i ended up getting there um but it's challenging because they ask the most profound the deepest questions you just need to find the sweet spot in a way that resonates with them yeah i well said. I've, yeah I, I would agree i've um, um just in this short amount of time that i've ever gotten to spend around my nephews uh they ask they once they get to that phase or if kids get to that stage where they just ask why about everything and eventually you get to the point where you're like i, I you know i don't i don't know but i used to make the mistake of um actually taking seriously questions um, uh, from my progressive friends or my liberal friends. Uh, I used to take seriously the premise of their question, and any time that happened, any time they made the mistake of letting that happen, it was stumped. So you can uh, fill in the blank with anything you want there, uh, right there. Uh, Question three, if, if, if anything about Santa and the North Pole could actually be true, what would you wish for it to be? Hmm, that's a really good question. If anything about Santa could that be whole true, mythos surrounding um, him. I've got to go with the. Uh, I got to go with the flying reindeer. Yeah. Ditto. Right? That's easy. I mean, how sweet would that be to to hitch a ride in that bad boy, right? With the jacked up rocket sleigh, like an elf. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I. You know they. A lot of the animation that we see in the movie The Polar Express is kind of standard in the movie industry now. But when that movie first came out, we'd not seen a lot of stuff like that in animation. I remember seeing it at the uh, uh, our local IMAX theater. And you really do feel like, you know, you are on that ride in that format. But I, you, either, you don't really see the sleigh until late in the movie, right? Because he spends most of it on the train and lots of other things. But... Um, you know, that got me to thinking at that time when we saw that with Anna when she was little, how cool would this actually be to, you know, to be on this kind of a ride? I mean, that would, that, that to me, you know, the other stuff, you know, I get to make cookies and eat them at home. You know, the presents I'm kind of too old for, but the sleigh, the flying reindeer on the sleigh, who would not want that ride? And intimately tied to that is whatever time and space traveling voodoo voodoo you need to get to every kid yes. in the world in yeah. one night that's pretty cool that is that, that is that is pretty cool as well yeah that's uh, that's what i was going to say but uh, since both of you agree on that I, I will say just the concept of having this kind of undiscovered 
uh, strain or group of humanoids living in some remote part <laughs> of the planet. That concept is just so cool. It's so called wish- Southern Texas. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that that's pretty cool. Build so a wall. I, yes, I would. Uh, I would say probably um, the the colony of elves. That would be that would be what I would want. You'd want your own elves. Yeah. Well, just knowing that there's 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 a different there's elves out there. See, I want minions. Yeah. You can have the elves as long as they're being tossed. Steve's in. <laughs> I want I want minions. I want my own minions. That I could absolutely live with. That the nightly buzz is next. Listening to Steve Dace. The Sleeping Giants Alarm Clock, Steve Dace. Now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. This is the Nightly Buzz, where we take a trip back to the news we just didn't have time to cover earlier in the show. Those headlines that are the buzz at uh, your social media hangout, your water cooler there at work, as reported to us by our producer, Aaron, we respond with the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. We'll be hearing a lot more about these stories, I'm assuming, in the coming days as the year draws to a close. But Dictionary.com's word of the year is xenophobia. And according to the AP... Xenophobia, or a fear of otherness, uh, bruised the collective consciousness around the globe. The Brexit vote, police violence against people of color, Syria's refugee crisis, uh, uh, transsexual rights, this is the AP's words, and the U.S. presidential race were among prominent developments that drove debate and spikes in lookups of the word. So is that what's driving the lack of ideological diversity in their newsrooms so i take it to mean therefore the fact that you don't really have a lot of pro-lifers working there in your newsrooms that you don't have a lot of bible believing christians in your newsrooms you don't have a lot of conservatives or trump voters in your newsrooms i i take that to mean that you're xenophobic as well that you have a a fear of otherness you have a a fear of those who have other beliefs or other values than you do see this is there's a law of philosophy todd philosophy is a science as you heard me say before like any other study is any other ology is and one of the laws of philosophy is for one side's assertion to be true the opposite assertion must also be so if what if if what they're saying if their application of what xenophobia or xenophobia if that application is accurate then it has to work the other way too it has to explain their lack of diversity it has to explain a web hosting company saying to a conservative group because of our inclusiveness we have to shut your website down right. okay it has to work if that application of what that definition means is true then it has to work the other way as well and it won't because nobody is more afraid of the, air quotes, other than progressives. This is why you say all the time, Steve, you will be made to care. You must bake the cake, bigot. Tip of the cap to Eric Erickson, who actually created that phrase, but yes. The other is terrifying to progressives. Wipe them out. All of them. 
Now I'll go with the emperor. But it's it's undeniable that they have created this monster, this this closet where all of these Christian conservative monsters live, um, because purging is what they do, and that's why if you don't recognize that, you will lose this game. Next story: The White House's top immigration staffer said President Obama won't pardon illegal immigrants. Before the end of his term, dashing hopes of activists who had pleaded for Mr. Obama to use his powers to shield hundreds of thousands of dreamers from deportation. White House Domestic Policy Council Director Cecilia Munez, in a podcast interview with the Center for Migration Studies, said they've concluded a pardon won't apply to immigration cases. It wouldn't be a permanent solution anyway. Hmm. Why would they need a pardon? Um, general, gen, generally speaking, you know, the, the Turkey was given a pardon, so it wouldn't, you know, be subject to some fate. Uh, pardons are usually given to those who are destined for some terrible fate because they did something because wrong. Because they're guilty. Yes. Right? You're, you, you don't need a pardon if you're innocent. You only need a pardon if you're guilty. So the virtue, uh, by virtue of even asking for this. They have indicted themselves, Todd. Yes, intellectually true. But I got to admit, this has got to be taking a level of restraint on the part of uh, President Barack Obama, who has pretty much walked around D.C. just owning the place, surrounded by feckless, flaccid fools everywhere. The long game... In terms of his his legacy, trying to square that with how Donald Trump will or won't behave, I I I don't know that he would be acting the same way if Donald Trump was not let, coming let, on let, his heels. Let's play this out because I think you're right. Let, let's play this out and let's say he attempts to pardon people who are in the country illegally. Okay. Um, the problem with that though is while that that while First of all, I wouldn't even take for granted that would legally hold up. I think that would touch off a constitutional question that we would be debated in the courts for clarification for years. I mean, you're talking about pardoning a, a broad group of people as, um, you know, I, the only thing I can think of that was similar is when uh, was it was it was it uh, Carter who did this with those who dodged the draft when he was president. Right. I think he did it in the 70s. But typically pardons are given individuals, not on some kind of a group-based um, group offense. But the problem with that is it, it doesn't answer the question. We're, ironically, we're back to what the liberal media likes to say to us on this question. Well, what do you do with the people who are already here? So he can't establish citizenship. So he could, he could, he could pardon them and say, hey, you can't. You can't uh, put these people in prison. Uh, their their crime has been uh, their their crimes have been pardoned. Let's say he could do that. Let's say the, the question was begged constitutionally and it held up. That that's not an action though of a granting of citizenship unto itself, which is why I'm not sure it would hold up. Because 
the, that's the crime. The crime is that they're not citizens. He can't unilaterally make them citizens. So what exactly is he pardoning? You know what I'm trying to say? I mean, the, it has the, when, you, when, when Carter p- pardoned the draft dodgers, they were citizens. He's pardoning them of a crime that is separate from their citizenship itself, not directly tied into the lack thereof. In this case, the crime is they're not citizens. He can't unilaterally make them so. So if he pardons them, but that still doesn't really answer the question of what do we do with these people anyway. doesn't make them citizens. The opposite doesn't become true. It doesn't. He can't do that by a unilateral action. And let's say he can. Doesn't he then walk into that scenario? And we well, talk- he could, the way he would try to do it by unilateral action would be an executive order, which would be just rescinded on January 21st, five minutes after President Trump takes the oath of office. But by doing so, then doesn't he, uh, he creates new problems that the Democrats are held accountable for and that he can't fundraise off of? Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right, quickly, uh, last story. The Dallas Morning News tweeted a link to a podcast with the text, Texas boosters were anti-Charlie Strong from the very beginning because of race. So you mean to tell me that a bunch of racists paid a black guy $5 million a year and then paid a black guy in his buyout now $11 million not to work? Todd, these are the worst racists ever. These are the dumbest racists of all time. They're now, now, now they worked all their lives to pay black people not to work. Somewhere, David Duke is ashamed. Somewhere, he understands these racists need to be re-educated. They really don't know how this whole racism thing works. I can't name it off the top of my head, but just show me Texas's record during Charlie Strong's tenure. He has the worst three-year record of any coach in the history well, of the There it is. There it is. Listening to Steve Dace. Hey there, Roman class. Meet your worst nightmare. I'm having these dreams, but I'm scared. Steve Dace. What child is this who lay to Back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Name of the book is Just Let Him Play. Dr. Andrew Jacobs is the author. He joins us now. And uh, Dr. Jacobs, it's good to have you with us tonight. How are you? Great, Steve. Enjoyable to be with you. So my wife and I, uh, Doc, are uh, big Survivor fans. I think we've seen virtually every episode. And, uh, and, And this year they're doing a competition between Gen Xers, that's my generation, and Millennials. And there was this interesting um, moment a couple of episodes ago where one of the lead millennial contestants just decided he was hungrier than everybody else. And so when they had won this reward with all this extra food, in the middle of the night he got up, took a bunch of it, and then stashed it somewhere on the beach where only he would know where it's at so he could just go off and eat it all by himself. And the next morning, everybody else got up, noticed the food was gone, nobody owned up to it. And so for like a week or two, this was a mystery where the food went. And a couple of weeks later, it was uh, it was revealed that he had taken it and he had eaten it all. And he said this, at, he admitted to this at a tribal council when they're about to decide who they're going to vote out. And he's kind of laughing as he's joking about this and everything else. And and he and then he says, guys, I'm you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. And one of the Generation Xers looks at him and then looks at Jeff Probst, who's the host of the show, and says, this is this is as millennial as it gets right here. 
The idea that I can just take something that doesn't belong to me that I didn't earn, consume it all, and then if I say I'm sorry when it's over, everybody's like, hey, you know what? You owned up to it. You admitted it, so it's okay. And Jeff Probst, the host of the show, looks at this young millennial man and he says, I suppose now you want a participation trophy as well. And I thought, I thought, Dr. Jacobs, that was a very good uh, moment in terms of encapsulating what we have done to the meritocracy that once was America. Am I wrong? I couldn't agree with you more. There's, there's a sense of entitlement with a lot of young kids today that they think, you know, they can get away with whatever they want. You know, in, in our book, Steve, we talk all about sportsmanship and about fair play and, and you know, doing things the right way. And it seems today that there's this push to try to get away with things, and then, you know, that there, there aren't any consequences for it in the end. I think one thing we need to point out, though, is I don't believe this is the millennial generation or the generation coming up behind them that would be my children. I don't believe this is their fault. I, I think human beings, Doc, live up or down to the expectation level, particularly children, will live up or down to the expectation levels that the adults set, that others will set for them. And so if we permit this sort of flaccid um, expectation level to permeate the culture, why should we expect anything other than flaccid in return? Well, I think you've hit it right on the head. And, and we talk about in the book so much about communication and the importance of communication between parents. I talk about, Steve, what I call the athletic box. It's parents, coaches, officials, all affect athletes. Everybody has a role. And everybody needs to understand their role and and what the rules are. And, you know, when you sign a youngster up for a youth sports team or some type of activity, ballet, dance, debate, whatever it is, it's important that you talk with the coach about what their expectations are, what their goals are, what your goals are as a parent. And you need to, you know, be on the same page. And oftentimes we see problems today where parents have unrealistic expectations for their kids and they take it out on the kids and the kids are the ones who end up having confidence issues and self-esteem issues and problems succeeding because of the parents. And I think you're right. It starts with the parents and it filters down. Let's start with the parents and the moral cesspool that has become um, has become America's youth sports league culture. What has happened there? Dr. Jacobs, with almost with too many parents thinking their son is a future pro in whatever sport he is playing, the the emphasis on on and I, I get training in those things. I was an athlete growing up, but we were encouraged to play all the sports year around. This idea that you only played one to specialize in it, um, but a lot of that seems to be delegitimized or de-emphasized in this era. No, we're getting to the point now where everything's being organized and structured. That play has gone out the window. We don't give chance a chance to create anymore and it's all about winning it's all about winning trophies it's all about getting you know beating the other team and and we've lost the perspective of what sports should be which is about competition about learning about success and failure having fun most importantly today it's about parents who are coaching their kids wanting to win a title for six-year-olds it's about giving everybody a trophy every time they play it's about you know the materialistic rewards and it's not about the non-materialistic things about self-confidence and success and failure and and learning about sportsmanship. Those things, even though they're talked about, those are not the emphasis for a lot of people.
listening to Steve Dace. The truth, straight, no chaser. Steve Dace. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. Take a look in the five and ten, listening once again. Back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. The name of the book is Just Let Them Play. I saw something with my uh, my nine-year-old son's flag football league this year that, that just drove me nuts. And i got to say, I'm very proud of myself at the level of restraint I showed here, Doctor, because I, I wanted to lose it on multiple occasions. One of the teams in my son's league, Coach just seemed like a really nice guy. A total pansy total pansy and allowed the kids to act out i saw i saw his son who's a little bit bigger than the rest of the kids on the team and isn't that good i saw him shoving kids on the sidelines and yelling at them they had one exchange in a game that uh, they played in this year where the coach is trying to tell his son these are nine-year-olds nine-year-olds the coach is trying to tell his son what to do. His son doesn't want to do that. And the coach says, just go in there and play quarterback, which, of course, to a nine-year-old is a reward. Just go in there and play quarterback and do whatever you're going to do. And this went on watching this transpire the entire season. Kids out there crying on the field if they didn't get a first down or if they didn't score. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to be that guy, okay? But if if you cried on the field for anything other than a protru- a protruding bone, the parents would turn around while the other boys inflicted mob justice against you to prove to, to show you there is no crying here where, where, where penises exist. We don't cry. That's not what we do here. That's not, it doesn't happen. I mean, take that to cheerleading tryouts or, you know, dance moms. We don't, we don't do that here. Okay. Um, that's the death. There's corporal punishment, death penalty immediately inflicted for crying unless, again, there's a bone that is visible. I could not believe the things I was watching. And then I, I watched this coach allow to go on. And, and, and then you could see as the season went on, the kids did not get better. In fact, when he would go out into the huddle to talk to the kids, they were more confused about what to do after he talked to them than he was before. Uh, they often didn't have uh, the right amount of players on the field. This was systemic all year long. How in the world does this happen, Dr. Jacobs? Well, let me ask this question, Steve, when I throw it back on you. Why do you think this guy was coaching? Because uh, no one else was willing to do it. And before you ask me why I didn't coach, which is a question I'd ask me if I were you, I did coach my son's team last year. When my schedule got switched to nights here with Salem, the practices were in the evening uh, for the practice windows for the kids after school, and it just wasn't available for me to do it. But yeah, your answer is there's a dearth of people willing to step up and, and teach the kids, right? So you have to give this guy credit from one perspective that he was willing to do that. At the same time, I think you know there are, there are a lot of reasons why parents coach their kids. And, and one of the things that we talk about in our book, and my co-authors are Jeff Montgomery, who's a three-time All-Star American League pitcher, and Pete Malone, who coached for four, swimmers for 40 years, had five gold medals in the Olympics and coached over 10,000 kids. And we talk all about you know when you, when you sign your kid up for a team, why is the coach coaching the team? What's mm-hmm. the coach's goals? What, what is that person's reasoning for coaching? Is it to win championships? Is it to teach and guide? Why is that person coaching the team? So the first step here would be for parents to ask this guy why he's coaching. What are your, you know, what do you want to do? I, we, we talk about the importance of a preseason meeting. 
And in that meeting, Steve, we sit down, you should sit down as a coach, talk about your goals and objectives for the season, gives the parents an opportunity to understand why you're there, what you want to accomplish, and gives the parents to talk to you about what they want. And then you see if it matches. And then if it does, great. If it doesn't, you move on and find somebody else. I mean, you shouldn't just sign your kid up for a team because it's a team in the area, knowing, thinking that coach knows everything. You need to ask questions. And, and obviously this guy did it maybe because no one else would do it, but he needed some guidance, some advice, and he, he should have had some other people helping him out. And that's where probably a, a meeting with parents should have been, been brought up. Say, Coach, we need to talk about some things that are going on here, not after a game, but you know, maybe one night during the week where, where parents can get together and sit down and talk with him about some of the concerns. Because if you don't bring these things up, they continue, and then, then the, the, the ones who get hurt are the kids. As we close this out, Doctor Jacobs, I think we need to we I think we need to project here at the end of this conversation about why what we're talking about is important and the life lessons that are learned at this stage of life. A few years ago, the Wall Street Journal ran a feature on millennials on Wall Street, and it was about grown men in their twenties who, when they got a negative job review, broke down and cried right there. Uh, in in front of their bosses and their coworkers, because they could not process how to handle someone telling them they weren't a unique little snowflake, and that if they were never here, the world somehow would miss them, and and things could not carry on, and that they they sucked at something, they weren't that good. You failed. You got to do better. Try harder next time. That's not acceptable. They'd never been confronted with the idea that they might not be special. Uh, and that they, they might just have to, you know, they might fail at something and have to learn from it. And I've got to believe that that's not something that's honed at 23 years old. That has to be cultivated at an early stage with the sort of culture within youth sports that we're talking about right now, isn't it? 100% correct. Our third chapter in the book is called Embracing Failure Can Lead to Fun. And the reason that chapter is at the beginning, and it's probably the most important chapter outside of sportsmanship in the book, is this. We don't teach kids how to fail anymore. Okay? They're either ridiculed and screamed at and yelled at for, for striking out exactly. with the loaded. Yep. Or they're not told, they're not coached, they're not, they're not embraced. Look, this is a life lesson. You know, we give participation trophies to kids in youth sports. And we don't think there's any problem doing that the first year you play in kindergarten or first grade. But after that, no. The lessons, the rewards need to be what did you learn about yourself? How did you get better? What did you learn about your skills or what about yourself? And failure happens in everything we do, Steve. It doesn't matter if it's sports, if it's school, if it's debate, if it's relationships. We're going to fail. We're going to screw up. So teaching kids that it's okay, that it's part of life, but you've got to learn from it and grow from it, that's what we need to do. And that's where youth sports can be such a tremendous benefit and help to kids. But when we don't teach kids how to do that, and it's, they're yelled and screamed at for screwing up, which then causes confidence problems with them, or they're not taught how to handle it, that's why you have the problem you just you just mentioned. Uh, it's, it's the line that uh, Thomas Wayne sends to his son Bruce in Batman Begins, why do we fall so we can get back up? Dr. Andrew Jacobs, the name of the book is Just Let Him Play. Where can our audience get a copy? It's on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and you can also find it at my website, which is winnersunlimited.com. Hey, great conversation tonight, Doc. I hope a lot of people read this book. Thanks for joining us, okay? Thank you so much for having me. All right, take care.
listening to Steve Dace. Don't mind us. There's only the future of the country at stake. You're listening to Steve Dace. So we've come to the end of tonight's broadcast. Covered a lot of ground here tonight. Trump stepping up his troll game on flag burning. John Kasich, American idiot. Uh, The scammiest of scam packs known as the uh, left's attempt to get a recount. Questions that uh, Trump's business dealings are going to create for him ethically from Tim Carney, who's a fantastic reporter at uh, the Washington Examiner, and then the conversation we just had with Dr. Andrew Jacobs about what is happening in our youth sports culture and how that is reaping the whirlwind once these young people grow up and enter into the adult world. So we covered a lot of ground here tonight, gentlemen. What did you learn, Todd? Well, I'm reminded of all the reasons I do coach youth sports, particularly as it's turned out in my life. I do coach soccer, but I do have a parent meeting every time I coach, and I've been coaching for, I don't know, my own kids for close to a decade now. And I say, listen, the job of your children when they come here is twofold. It is to hustle and to listen. And if you're paying attention, that has nothing to do with soccer specifically or even sports specifically. That has to do with life. You work hard and you listen, you're going to do well not only on this field at whatever level caper you're doing, but you're going to do well in life. And I, I get involved in that because I can't stand watching what you described uh, with those other parents, I just I I can't abide by it. it. It drives me nuts. Coaching is is a privilege. It is such an opportunity to get life in action right, and that's ultimately at the end of the day, life is full of countless moving parts. You're juggling chainsaws. You need to start learning little life lessons, planting seeds early on. So I'm reminded why not only do I love coaching, but I I don't just uh, mail it in uh, with my with my kids or anybody else's kids. I feel like I have a job to do. Aaron, what'd you learn? Yeah, I was going to go slightly down the same um, path here, and I've seen this up close in my generation, and I think this uh, this issue with um, you know having fun uh, with sports, but also being competitive and learning how to compete and how to compete well, and then the whole thing about uh, having a work ethic; those things are so tied together, I think, and I've seen it up close in my generation, and I have to always be careful not to paint with a broad brush, but I've seen a lot of people, a lot of my friends, who just don't have that work ethic because they're not competitive. They think if they're not the best at something, and I catch myself at this, doing this, thinking this way sometimes, they think if they're not the absolute best at something or not at the pinnacle of whatever profession they want to be in, if they do have something that they like to pursue, they think that they're a failure and they they wonder why then they should actually work at all and actually uh, try to compete and try to better themselves. And uh, that's where you see the self-loathing and um, all the other bad stuff that goes along with that. So that's that's what I took away. This competitive nature and not learning how to compete at a young age, I think it contributes a lot to what we're seeing nowadays with my generation. Indeed. I think it does as well. Back at it again tomorrow. Until then, John 317. Listening to Steve Dace.